Um, how many of you have read the Harry Potter books? Show of hands. All right. How many have seen the movies? More hands. See? Did you notice that as you read on, the books got heavier? And I don't mean just bigger. They did get bigger. But they got heavier, too. The situations are more dire. Like, the problems are more grown up. The kids are more grown up, so it fits. But more sinister. One of the ways that we describe this is darkness. They got darker, right? If we watch the movies, which I saw some of you watch the movies without reading the books, you actually uh, see that because it's a visual medium, right? You see that it's darker. If you look at even the Warner Brothers logo at the beginning for the Sorcerer's Stone, it's like the normal Warner Brothers, all colorful, bright. Then the next one, Chamber of Secrets, it's close to normal but a little cloudy. After that, it's just dark, just stays dark for the rest of them. No brightness at all. And then the movies don't really pick up from the logo and get brighter. They stay dark. They're like, by the time you're at the last couple movies, it's like you need to watch it at night, which is after 4.30 during the winter. Um, when it's dark out, lights off so you can see, you know, so it's not too bright and the dark stuff isn't visible. There's always, almost always this sense of like foreboding. Who knows what's going to happen? Danger. Despair. For honest, we know this imagery of darkness as well. All of our lives are influenced by it. On a macro level, it's easy to see. Just look at the world around us. Constant fighting, constant bickering, constant division, sickness, news cycles that are just aimed at stirring us up, getting us angry, making us afraid. Just goes on and on. Now, Christmas is over, so we don't even have the 24-hour marathons of Hallmark movies going as an escape to lighten the mood. But it's not just the world out there. We know it in our own lives as well. For some of us, it seems like our whole lives have been lived in darkness, just one hard and heavy thing after another. For others, we've known seasons, and you may be in one right now where it seems like the lights have gone out. It could be one big thing you're dealing with or a million small ones that just add up, that wear you down, or you feel like you're just being crushed and exhausted, drained, no relief in sight. And if we're honest, we can see this darkness in ourselves, in our own hearts, in desires that we have, in tendencies that we engage with and look toward others. The question is, will it ever get better? Will the darkness ever disperse? Is there any hope? So with that in mind, let's look at God's word from Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the, sta the staff of, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth 
and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear you, that this would not go in one ear and out the other, but that you would work it deep down into our hearts, that it would affect change in our lives, that your spirit would apply it to us, that we would look more like your son, that we would know your son more deeply, that we would follow him more closely. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this well-known text comes in the middle of what they call the book of Emmanuel in Isaiah, which is chapters 7 to 12. We get some of those famous Christmas passages in there. And Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem and Judah. And this is written about 730 B.C., so a little before the fall of the northern kingdom. And the Syrians and Israel are attacking Judah, trying to get in. And the king of Judah is Ahaz, and he's not a good king, which is a common theme as we go through most of the Bible. Kings that aren't so good. He didn't obey the Lord. He offered sacrifices to other gods. He even sacrificed his own son, gave him up as an offering to another god. And through Isaiah, God asked Ahaz, he said, I want to prove to you that I'm the living God. What sign do you want to see? He says, I don't, I'm not going to put you to the test. I would ask for something probably if I were him. I'd say just defeat these guys. But he says, I'm not going to do that. The Lord says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. I'm going to send a child. A virgin will get pregnant and give birth. And his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's the sign I'm going to give you. But he didn't want that. So instead, he's, he tries orchestrating his own way out of this problem. And he makes a deal with the Assyrians, the ones who end up conquering Israel. So now you're dealing with Syria, Israel, and now you're having to kind of pay taxes to Assyria for them to protect you. Needless to say, uh, things could be better. And just before our passage this morning, the situation's described. Says the people have followed Ahaz in hardening their hearts to the Lord. And when they look around, all they see is distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they're thrust into thick darkness. So as we come to our text this morning, knowing what they've been through and how we experience this in our own lives, what we want to ask is, what hope do we have when life seems so dark? And this passage can kind of be divided into two sections. The hope is first described in verses 2 and 3 there, and it's explained in verses 4 to 7. So as we ask that question, what hope do we have when life seems so dark? We're going to look first at how it's described. As the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide spoil. So where there was deep darkness and gloom, now we see light and joy, just kind of this total reversal. It's completely flipped. If we pay attention to how it's Worded, we actually see that both of these come about passively. On them light has shown. You, that is God, have increased its joy. God does the work here on his people's behalf. They don't have to dig themselves out of darkness. They don't have to um, do away with their own gloom. Instead, God shines light on them. God increases their joy. 
So Ahaz won't turn to God, but tries to work it out for himself by making a deal with Assyria only to make it worse. Are we that different? Don't we just need to work harder? Don't we just need to be better? If we change our attitude, if we look at it positively, positivity breeds positivity. It'll get better. We'll feel better. Life will be less difficult and there will be less gloom. After all, God helps those who help themselves. No, we don't need to do those things. And no, God doesn't help those who help themselves. I'm not saying we shouldn't be faithful where we are. Don't hear that. But we do need to recognize our finitude. The fact that the control we think we have is an illusion. On our own, we are helpless and hopeless. We need someone outside of us to step in and save us. It's actually what we sang right? in our confession of sin. My help must come from thee. Something that has to break in from the outside. As we see scripture, what do we see but God doing that? Stepping in to choose and to love and save the small, the helpless, the people we wouldn't expect. And God says that he loves and chooses Israel because they're the smallest of all people. Jesus says that he came to seek and save the lost, that he came for the sick, not the well. Paul tells us that God chooses what is weak and foolish and low and despised in the world so that no man might boast in the presence of God. It's upside down. It's the opposite of what we're told and what we expect. And we have to answer, where do we look for hope? In our next job, in our next relationship, the next doctor's appointment, the next vacation, what you can work out, what you can plan, what you can accomplish and make happen. We need to look to God and not to ourselves. We need someone outside of us to break in. We can't fix ourselves. We need God to intervene. And he does. So what hope do we have when life seems so dark? That God does intervene. That he will shine his light upon us, dispelling darkness and gloom because he loves us. And that he will give us joy and we will rejoice fully in his presence. Now let's see how this hope is explained. As we come to verses 4 to 7, we see this kind of threefold four explaining this hope and what it is, how it's coming. So the first one's in verse 4. It says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So first, God will bring oppression to an end. God will break the yoke of his burden. There will be no taskmaster stepping over them, standing over them, them, oppressing them. That's what we hear a lot about today. We're listening, breaking these bonds of oppression. But if we're listening to the world's solutions, what we're being sold is a false bill of goods, merely an exchange of one oppressor for another. There's never real justice, never real freedom, just switching who's on top. But this says that God will miraculously work out freedom 
and in depression. That's what's recalled with the reference to the days of Midian. It goes back to Judges 7, where God helped Gideon defeat all of the Midianites with 300 guys. So against thousands of soldiers, 300. And it says he did this so that the people of Israel could not boast. So they could not say, my own hand has saved me. It was clear that it was the Lord who saved them. That he worked it as it will be here. So oppression to an end. The second four is in verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The second war will cease. There will be no need for combat boots or fatigues. They'll be burned. You don't even need to put them in a footlocker, put them away. Like I've done with all my clothes that I'm going to fit into eventually again, you know, that are in the basement and have been moved three times. Um, Not going to happen. Don't need them. Burn them up. Use them as fuel for fire. It's over. People talk in social theory or philosophy, will to power, the desire to gain the power to have this influence, which then usually leads to war, to violence. There will be no more. It's replaced instead with a will to love, a desire to show love, not to be over someone, but to love them. That does not seek violence, but actually reflects the character of our loving and triune God who is love. So oppression will cease and wars will be no more. So how will this happen? It brings us to the climax in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Most of us have heard this verse so many times, and we know it's talking about Jesus, so we don't even consider how absurd it would sound, right? No more oppression, that makes sense. No more wars. Yeah, people are attacking us. A baby's going to be born. It's a little intriguing. What? (laughs) We're in darkness now. You know how much can happen in 20 years for the kid to grow up? We're in darkness now. We're dealing with Syria, Israel, and Assyria now. How's a child going to help? And if 20 years wasn't enough, it's actually more than 700 before this child's born. How's he going to help? Because Israel's bigger problem isn't those enemies. Those are just symptoms of their disease, of their hardness of hearts, that it rejects the Lord and worships false gods. The main question as you're reading through these chapters in Isaiah, this book of Emmanuel, is will the Davidic dynasty survive? Because it's not looking good in Jerusalem. So that's what it's really addressing. But wrapped up in that question is the bigger question of whether or not God keeps his promises. And hope, both for the present and the future, rest in Emmanuel, God with us. The question is, will God overcome their faithlessness and continue to love them and continue to keep covenant with them despite their sin? And we see God's answer here. A child will be born. A son will be given. 
Even in this first couplet there, we see that this is no ordinary child. He's born of a human and yet a given son, the son of God. We see his kingship and his divinity throughout. He will reign. The government shall be upon his shoulders. He's called mighty God, everlasting father. Father here doesn't mean like father God, first person of the Trinity. It's a word they use for the king who is meant to protect them. As a father protects his family, he protects his people. And prince of peace is the ruler of peace, not the son of a king of peace. He rules in peace. His kingdom and peace, or shalom is the Hebrew word, this idea of um, flourishing, of completion, of wholeness, will only expand, it'll only grow, and he'll sit on the throne of David and rule with justice and righteousness forever. So God's answer in the hope for his people rests in the incarnation of his son, the birth of a child, the giving of a son, God breaking through, God stepping in to keep covenant with a wayward people. What we just spent the last two weeks celebrating with Christmas. But what good is the news of the incarnation for Judah? Right? It gives them hope. Hope that what they're going through will not always last. Hope that their darkness will come to an end. Hope that God has not forgotten them, but that God will keep his promises in ways that are above and beyond what they can imagine. I mean, they've had some, a couple decent kings, a couple, couple good ones, a couple decent ones, and several not-so-good ones, right? Even in the Davidic line. Now they've got Ahaz. Like, is that what you want? Is just this line to continue no matter who they are? But he says, not only will the line continue, and it won't be occupied by a mere human, but I myself will come and do it. God himself will sit on the Davidic throne forever. We won't have to be worrying about the fluctuations of this. It will be forever. So how should the people have responded? By trusting in God and his promises. By rejoicing in the hope of their coming deliverance. And by living under his rule keeping covenant with the Lord, returning to faithfulness. So we have the advantage now of like looking back and get to see it. They're looking forward, trusting God will do it. We get to look back and see that God has kept his promise, that he has given his son. The child has come, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. He was born in Bethlehem in the city of David. Great David's greater son has come. So how do we respond? After Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, as he's beginning his ministry, Matthew tells us that this passage has been fulfilled. Matthew writes, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We should respond by doing what Jesus calls them to do. After saying this is fulfilled, we should repent. We should turn away from our sins and turn to Jesus in faith, seeing what God has already done. That despite our sin, and despite the inability to save ourselves, he has come in that we might be redeemed, that we might know life, that we might know joy, that we might know hope. 
that we might be forgiven and restored in relationship with our maker. And we should recognize and submit to his kingship. Thomas Watson, Puritan, wrote back in the 17th century, and this is something that probably could be written today as well, said, many would have Christ for their savior, but not their prince. Such as will not have Christ to be their king to rule over them shall never have his blood to save them. This expectation in the Bible is joyful submission to the Lord, that when we see what he's done, we love him for it. Because we love him, we submit to him and obey him. It actually changes the way that we live. We repent from our sins, turn from them, seek to live faithfully by the power of his spirit dwelling in us. But we still might ask, so what? Right? We're on the other side where Jesus has already come. He's lived, he was crucified and buried. He rose from the dead and has ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of God the Father. And yet, we still feel this darkness and gloom. It's still so near to us. We often ask, where is the light? Where is the increase of our joy? It doesn't feel like the harvest. It feels like a famine. It doesn't feel like we've won a battle and are dividing the spoil. It feels like we just keep getting beaten up. We look around and still see oppression. Many of us feel it acutely. We look around and still see fighting and war and enmity. The truth is that we do a disservice to the world if we act like becoming a Christian and following Jesus will make life easy. Like all of our problems will go away if we just believe. Those of us who have followed Christ for any length of time know that that's naive. Instead, the Bible tells us that we actually will suffer because we're following Christ who suffered. You've probably heard me say this before, but we're often told that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Right? And that's true insofar as it goes. But I had a seminary professor who I think put it a little bit better when he would say, God loves you and has a difficult plan for your life. Right? Jesus doesn't make life easy. In fact, sometimes it's harder because of him. It'd be easier to just go with the stream instead of standing against it. And yet he's present with us in it. That he sustains us through it. It is better when we're with him. But where is our hope? Knowing the child has come and we still experience all of this. It lies in the fact that we live in this time of tension where Christ is reigning on David's throne. His kingdom has already been inaugurated, but we don't yet experience it in its fullness. It hasn't yet been consummated, what we call the already and the not yet, where this prophecy is partially fulfilled, but we're still waiting on the completion of it. We want it all to happen like that, probably like they would have. They wait 700 years for the child to even be born. We read it and expect it to happen quickly. But it's actually taking time. And praise God that he's taking time because he's patient with us, that we might come to him. 
that we might be redeemed and know him. But spiritually, we can know verses 4 and 5 in truth, right? We were slaves to sin and death and Satan, but that yoke has been broken. That rod has been shattered. Jesus, God in the flesh, took our sins upon himself on the cross, and he rose from the dead so that all who trust in him will be forgiven. They will truly be free. And our battle with God is over. We were actually battling against him. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can know these in truth, spiritually. We can see the light in Christ and we can rejoice in his salvation but we also look to Christ's return, where all will be made right, when we will no longer experience darkness of any kind, when we'll be free not only from bondage to sin, but free from its effects and presence as well. He has promised it. The day is coming when he will return and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for he is making all things new. And we see in this passage that God is a promise-keeping God. That he does what he says he will do. And so we can trust him to bring about the completion of it. The promised light broke through the darkness. But in this period of already and not yet, it can feel at times like the darkness remains. We can see something akin to this in Harry Potter. On the internet, you can get these, you can get about anything on the internet. But one of the things that you can get on the internet are these pictures where it takes every screenshot every frame and smashes them all together from all the movies, right? So it kind of ends up looking like a barcode as it does that. And if you look at the one from Harry Potter, you'll see at the, toward the end, it's like a little bit lighter, dark, 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 right? And then toward the end, I guess for you guys, it's this way. Right there. It's this white line that just sticks out, out of nowhere, just vivid, just total contrast. And it's the scene where Harry's speaking to Dumbledore at King's Cross Station, right, after he sacrificed himself to save others. Yes, Harry Potter has echoes of the gospel in it, as does any good story, but that's another sermon for another day. After he's offered himself up to save others. After this scene, though, it gets dark again. Because even though you know Voldemort is done, they still have to fight that battle. This period that still has to happen. That's what right now can seem like to us. The light has come. Victory is guaranteed. But we're still back in darkness sometimes. Christ has come. He's conquered sin and death, and yet we experience it so vividly. It can still seem so dark. But the day is coming when he will return and we will be with him 
And we will experience perfect peace and justice and righteousness forever. We can have hope that the one who carried out verse 6 in the coming of Christ will not leave off the culmination of verse 7 at his return. And we can have hope because we know that God keeps his promises.